Hello and a very warm welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are with you for the next hour to take your Bible questions and seek the Lord in his word for the the answers. We're very glad you're joining us. That's right, we are live and this show is completely guided by your questions. So if you have a question on the Bible, God's word, the Bible, perhaps a verse or a passage of scripture, that has confused you or maybe world events from a biblical perspective, maybe something in your world, something you're going through that you'd like some biblical guidance on or a biblical perspective, anything of that nature. We just ask that it's an honest question from the heart and in faith and gladly we will seek the Lord in his word with you for this next hour. Uh, with me today, as is often the case, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm having a good time. Yeah, have a good time. Well, <laughs> so far, so good. It's just begin- yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, Pastor Scott, the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. How are you doing today? Doing great, Dave. Great to be with you and Sean. Looking forward to how the Lord guides the conversation. Absolutely. We hope you had a wonderful weekend, and we are here Monday through Friday from five to six, at least our time. We are. Let me let you know how you can join us. If you're joining us on Reach Radio or a radio affiliate, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Um, we're glad you're joining us. You can send us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out there with letters, uh, at gmail.com, and we'll get to your question on our next show, Lord willing. But on our other platforms, we are, like I say, live as can be. Um, you can join us in several ways. Uh, Reason for Hope is a ministry of, of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab and you will find us there. Or on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We are live there also. Also on Roku and Apple TV. And we have an app as well. So if you search in those app stores for Calvary Christian Fellowship, download the app and you can join us there as well. On YouTube, it is A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel there. And once again, our email address, should you prefer that, is questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can send us emails, you know, of course, anytime, even off air, and we will get back to those. So if you are on your drive time, listen on the radio, we're glad you're joining us. Consider joining us uh, when you're not driving on one of our live platforms and you can send your questions in. So any of the chat platforms on the platforms you're watching on, put your questions in there. I personally will be monitoring those as they come on in and we will endeavor to get to all your questions as the Lord provides time and, uh, and provides the answers as well in his word. Sean, would you like to pray for us? The most important thing, perhaps, that we seek the Lord and His Spirit and His guidance. Always want to make sure He speaks more than we do. That's right. Thank you that we have the chance to be in Your Word with Your people, and we pray in Your Spirit. Enable my Father and I to not only speak with Your words, but with Your heart, and let the people who are listening be given ears that want to hear Your voice and hearts ready to receive what's being shared. Give us not only accuracy in the information we share, but the right attitude that we bring to it. And thank you that you relate to us on the basis of grace. I pray that that would be what's ultimately demonstrated through this broadcast. You would be glorified by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. All right. So where are we beginning? Well, um, Scott, you were mentioning on yeah. the way here, in fact, you yeah. ran into a lady. Yeah. Who kind of cheated and had a question for you? Yeah, um, yeah, we, uh, we we get questions through all kinds of avenues, not just Facebook and uh, YouTube and and so on, but uh, also just out and about. Uh, I happened to uh, go into a uh, Target store uh, because I needed uh, something to charge one of my various and sundry uh, Apple products that I was out of. And uh, was walking through, and there was a lady that was uh, helping people check out in the self-check area there, which has got to be a very interesting job 
uh, in and of itself. Uh, and uh, I asked her uh, where I could find uh, the uh, the Apple products there, and she directed me. And then she says, "You're you're Pastor Scott, aren't you?" Uh, which is a really good reminder to me that I should be very nice to all people at all times. <laughs> <laughs> you never know when you're going to get outed as a pastor out and about. Uh, but uh, I said, yeah. And she says, well, I, I've been to your church uh, one time. We visited with some friends. And, um, you know, I always had this question that I wanted to ask uh, about the role of uh, women in ministry. And I said, well, did you know about our uh, Reason for Hope program that we have? It's on every day. She said, no, I had no idea about that. I said, all right. Her name is Brianne. I said, we're going to put your question right up front. And, and answer that question for you. Had a, a really neat opportunity as well. Um, one of the things that the Lord's laid on my heart and my wife Pam's heart, uh, as far as uh, ministry opportunities go, is uh, we just ask people if they tell us anything about what's going on in their life, we can pray for them. Mm. And it's just amazing how many people you run into who will say, I've never been prayed for in my wow. entire life. Uh, and, and they're always very touched by it. And, you know, you don't have to put on the big heavy-duty King Jamesy English or anything like that. You just, you know, I just think uh, if you put people at ease and just talk to the Lord uh, about uh, what's going on in their life. And, you know, Brianne shared, uh, you know, a need that she had. And I said, do you mind if I pray for you right now? I said, this is not going to get you in trouble, is it? And I loved her response. She just said, no, um, our priority is to make our customers happy. So if praying for me will make you happy. Uh, there's no problem there at all. <laughs> so, so we prayed right then. That's and a there. good technique to use yeah. for everyone listening. Go yeah. and say uh, the customer's always right. We're yeah. going to pray right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, had the opportunity to pray for her, and uh, you know, we're just uh, uh, you know really excited about any of those opportunities. So, if you're out there, and, and sometimes the first thing I would just share with our audience, sometimes we say, "Oh, you know, I share my faith, but I I just don't know how to uh, raise the subject." breach the issue. Mm. Boy, I have found so often that uh, just asking people when they start to share, uh, you know, what's going on in their life or some complaint that they have or, you know, some uh, deal that's going on with them that is just uh, kind of uh, bothering them, you know, just say, well, can I pray for you about that? Uh, you know, it's such a, a wonderful bridge uh, to, it disarms people and you know, who wouldn't want to have some prayer? And, and it, you know, during prayer, I don't mean to uh, imply that it would be manipulative, but just praying, you know, that God would show his love towards people in this set of circumstances can really disarm people and, and even raise the opportunity to be able to talk about where they are with the Lord and, and, and their need for Christ. So I uh, highly recommend that. Uh, just when you start your day, if someone starts sharing some complaint they have about life or some struggle they're having in life, don't be afraid to say, hey, can I pray for you? And, and just pray and, and see how the Lord uses that. Uh, but uh, back to uh, Brianne's question, uh, when she was asking about, you know, what is the role of, of women in church from a biblical point of view? Boy, that can be a pretty controversial subject. And, and I mean, there are some uh, pretty uh, uh, strong verses uh, that we believe are applicable in the here and now today, not culturally uh, limited to the time uh, that they were written, that uh, involve the role of uh, women in church. Uh, do they not, Sean? Yeah, and when it comes to figuring out what 
someone, anyone, regardless of gender, ought to be doing, there's generally three ways we approach the Bible in finding that out. The first is historical application. If we see people in a positive context being put in that sort of position or role in ministry and happen to be of the fairer sex, then that would be an advocate. Um, a positive example of that, not a condemnation of it. You would say, oh, uh, so could God become a man? Well, he did, so that would be an affirmation that he is capable of one of those things. It was demonstrated in Scripture. Likewise, oh, can a woman prophesy? Can someone uh, you know, speak on behalf of the Lord? Well, in the Old and New Testament, we see examples of that. That would be a way of interpreting. So when we're talking about women's roles in ministry, we'd say, well, there were ministries, that involved women, and the ones that were positive models in Scripture would be considered legitimate, and that's pretty easy to understand from a linguistic point of view. And it's also important to understand as well, I'm being careful with my words and saying positive examples. There were people who took positions in Scripture that uh, weren't positive things, and of course I'm uh, alluding to, say for example, the Queen of Israel, Jezebel and Athaliah, (laughs) they weren't positive examples. That's not a condemnation against matriarchs, but the point being made is, remember, context matters. Yeah. So if we're going to look at historical examples, there are plenty. There are, for example, um, I believe it was Philip's seven daughters who were identified as prophetesses in the book of Acts. There were Priscilla and Aquila, who were a husband and wife, who both led a essentially a hosting of their home as a property that would be considered a church. Uh, there were also other examples of people who were used as basically conduits of fulfilled prophecy. For example, Elizabeth, who was used to give right. birth to a child, fulfilling Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, and... Mary herself, who is the fulfillment of pretty much the entire Old Testament's purpose. So those would be examples of ministries or services that God used through them, not just equipped in the context of history, but by his Spirit. And that's what's key. What will the Holy Spirit call someone to if they're a woman? Well, let's just start with the broadest sense possible. What does the Holy Spirit do just with human beings in general? And if it narrows down from there, we'll specify that. That's the second category. On top of historical application, there's also doctrine, what's laid out and explained, what God does and what God doesn't do. How does he use people? Well, interestingly enough, following a passage that's used out of context to uh, demean women in Christianity, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 explains the roles of people in the church, not men or women, people in the church. It says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. Now, I'm going to pause before I start verse 7, because this will be important when we get to the later passages, going into more detail. Does the fact that someone has a different ministry, a different activity, a different service to provide in the body of Christ make them superior or inferior because the Holy Spirit's equipping them in a different way? No, it's just difference. So um, note yeah. that point. Yeah, I mean, it all flows out of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, and he is the one who uh, gives to each person the ability to be able to serve. It's not something we do for God. It's something that he does in and through us. And what yeah. are some of those things? Well, note in verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, 
to another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, that's important, and note this, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So with that then said, with the nice pensive uh, desk pounding for emphasis, we need to understand this isn't a genderification of spiritual gifts. It's the Spirit using people however he sees fit. Now, that's where we get into the third category. On top of historical examples and on top of doctrinal examples, there's also specifics where we are given direct references, direct explanations, and answering of controversies that were clarified in those settings. And based on that, we form doctrine as well. But it needs to be taken in light of the rest of Scripture. So if I conclude, for example, oh, it says that uh, women are supposed to have head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. Is that saying that there's a dress code for women in church? If you're in first century Corinth and have the attire of a prostitute by shaving your head, then yeah, don't come to church in a way that's going to be perceived in your culture as being a prostitute. But if on the other hand you note, oh, well, that, that just means that, well, it wasn't applied that way, it would be inappropriate to be applied that way, and it's dodging some very important issues, specifically in regards to plain reality. But again, yeah. not to so, stack the deck, so, here's the third aspect. So so coming in, so understanding where we're at, God has spiritual gifts. He's the one who gives these spiritual gifts. God is the one who doesn't elevate, say, one gift over another, uh, aside from the gift of love, which makes all the gifts come together. Yeah. But then the third aspect you're talking about is is again what these controversial passages are including specific people being given specific instructions with a broader scope in mind so for example when we go to first timothy chapter 2 where it notes that i do not permit a woman to have authority over a man yeah and i think it's important to see the the flow in the context of this in first timothy 2 and verse 8 it says i desire therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or with costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now we get into the nitty-gritty of it. It says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there does appear to be a demarcation of gifts and the practice of gifts within the body of Christ. Uh, it does appear that God does not want women to teach or be in authority over men. Now, that doesn't mean that women can't have any kind of a teaching role, correct? No. In the book of Titus chapter 2, it notes much with the same language, believe it or not, and the same type of letter. Paul speaking to someone who's going to be leading a church. You know, the leadership position was already filled. That's the first hint. He tells Titus to the people of Crete, reminding them that women should be, on top of addressing men as teachers of good things, women likewise that they would teach younger women to be chaste homemakers, good to their families, and so forth. But here's the interesting point of emphasis. 
when we're talking about this distinction made between the sexes, if that's considered controversial, that's a very much 21st century American, or Western at least, perspective and spin on the text as demeaning, as victimizing, as um, oppressive, if you want to use their language. But what's odd is, if we're going to talk in terms of equality, what would be the most equal distribution of responsibilities? That if there's one limitation being made on women, there should also be one limitation made on men. You can't both have the same limitation, otherwise that role would just be completely vacant. So can men not do the same number of spiritual callings by God, same ministries given to them and equipped by them by God, or equipped for them by God, as men? Well, if men are given a call for leadership, what are women uniquely called to that men can't? The answer, they can have a baby. Yeah. They'll be saved in childbearing. They right. continue in faith. So if we're asking the question, oh, so women aren't allowed to do anything in church. No, First Corinthians 12 describes all spiritual gifts to all people, not to all men. And Titus goes on to say that women should emphasize a discipling and teaching women uh, ministry with other women. And the same in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it notes that men are to pray always, lifting up holy hands and good work and conduct, as if women are supposed to not pray ever. They're supposed to be abrasive in their conduct. Yeah, and exactly. You get the absurdism. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I think what it comes down to is this, and this is really where the lightning rod of controversy is concerned. They say, well, I know women, you know, like, say, a Beth Moore or a Pam Schreier are very gifted teachers. Are you saying that they shouldn't teach or have authority over men? In a word, yes, uh, that's what the Bible says. Uh, there's a demarcation of these responsibilities, and if we pay attention to them, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting how uh, we can save ourselves a peck of trouble, uh, Brianne, about all of this. Men are to teach and exercise authority over the whole congregation. Uh, women are to teach other women. Now, when we take these roles seriously, some wonderful things happen. First of all, men are going to be encouraged to step up and exercise their God-given rule as spiritual leaders. I believe that since the fall of man, we pretty much uh, want to do almost instinctively the opposite of what God wants us to do. And, um, you know, I can only offer anecdotal information, but in my experience in the church, if uh, there weren't these commands for men to step up and say be prayer uh, warriors or men to uh, teach or exercise authority in the church— Generally speaking, men would defer these things to women because women seem to be very much, uh, in general, I'm painting with a broad brush, uh, interested in taking these kind of active roles. Men are being encouraged in all of this to step up, not step out of being these spiritual leaders. The other thing that I think is really in, in encouraging about this is if women focus in on discipling and teaching other women, there's a real safeguard here. Because when men and women begin to sit down and discuss spiritual issues, very difficult to be able to share about spiritual issues in our lives, maybe counseling issues that are going on in life, without becoming vulnerable to each other. And I can tell you again, um, I know of uh, at least 12 different circumstances that I've been aware of since I've been in full-time ministry where uh, you have a uh, pastor and a uh, woman who get involved in a counseling relationship or a discipling relationship, and they go, well, you know, again, there's neither male nor female in Christ. We can uh, go ahead and do this. Well, the, the problem with that 
is uh, you begin to share on this kind of deep level. And in one circumstance, I know of directly, uh, the pastor was having some problems at home. And this woman was kind of bummed out that her husband wasn't really interested in spiritual things. So you have these two people come together, and uh, this uh, woman looks at this pastor like he's a knight in shining armor. Oh, he's got time for me. He listens to me. He's so interested in spiritual things. And quite frankly, the guy starts looking at the woman and saying, you know, I'm not really getting much respect at home spiritually. And this woman hangs on my every word. Well, the bottom line is they fell into not just an emotional affair, but even a physical affair. And uh, the ministry of this man was completely destroyed. And the marriage of this woman uh, was saved, but not without a whole lot of stress and strain. How could something like that be avoided? Well, by reading the instructions. Mm. If uh, this man, you know, was a pastor, sat down with this woman and said, okay, I understand you're having some of these problems in your home, but for your own safety, we've got some godly women in this church who can come alongside and minister the word of God to you. What really matters is not who shares truth with you, but that you get truth shared with you, and then it's shared in an applicable way. And so that Titus passage really does come in. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I think uh, also uh, is is uh, really important in this set of circumstances is uh, that as far as effective ministry is concerned, any guy who will say to you, I am just as capable of understanding the needs and the perspectives of women as a woman is in this set of circumstances, I think they're kind of woofing. You know, uh, as uh, Peter Martin uh, often will opine on this program, uh, men aren't called to understand all women, but they are called to live in an understanding way with the woman who is their wife. Mm. That's, in my opinion, enough of enough. a challenge <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, any, anyone who, who says that men uh, understand on a deep level the struggles and the issues and the challenges that a woman has, really, they can't say, oh, I, I'm very empathetic uh, about what it means. Uh, say, to be seven months pregnant and have someone kicking your ribs out from the inside. No man's going to be able to understand that, no. you know, just as an example. And so if we follow the instructions that we find in the Word, if we don't just write off, oh, well, that was just cultural, or, or you know, this person is, is so much more talented and gifted, so we're going to give them this role based upon their competency rather than based upon what the Scripture has to say. I think we're asking for trouble. Yeah. You know, and so the reason that we see the Bible giving these things is for our blessing and for our benefit, for our spiritual protection. And so because of that, uh, we do uh, take uh, a complementarian role uh, or view of uh, the roles of men and women in Scripture because the mm -hmm. Scripture explicitly teaches this. And, and like you mentioned, Sean, uh, to read into the Scripture a uh, 21st century westernized idea of egalitarianism that can't even define what a woman is yeah and ultimately mm -hmm. we get to that point uh it is very uh we're on very shaky ground if we try to impose that kind of point of view on scripture and what we really need to be doing in these circumstances especially with a hot button issue like this yeah. is reading out of the scripture not reading into it so uh brianne i guess to sum it up uh you know all believers in the body of Christ are given spiritual gifts. We are expected to exercise these spiritual gifts as the Lord leads, not only through the empowering work of his spirit, but his spirit is never going to lead or direct 
contrary to the clear teaching of this Spirit-inspired Word of God. If we allow these spiritual gifts to be governed and guided by these instructions, say men teaching or exercising authority over the flock in general, women being able to minister to women and uh, to children, obviously, according to their spiritual gifts, not being restricted from praying or, or prophesying, if, if that's something that happens there, uh, but uh, not in any kind of official teaching or leading role, uh, we're going to be uh, in a place where I think uh, not only is God going to be honored, but people are going to be protected and shepherded properly. Yeah. So again, note, historically, there is no limitation or position as far as a calling by God in the Old or New Testaments that women were barred from because that's just how God does things. In the New Covenant, in the church, that's what we're framing this question around, there is one limitation placed on men and one limitation placed on women. That is fair. And also noting every spiritual gift isn't given to every person, and the passage before discussing any of them to anybody says a different calling, even a limit to a particular calling, is not an inferior status in Scripture. Now note, you can read your own biases and prejudices into Scripture, but that's not objective reading. We want to make sure that if we understand our role in the church, it's going to be determined by the one who founded the church, and that's not the Pope, by the way. So make sure that that's the one whom you're trying to serve, not to say, well, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to pursue a ministry that's been closed off to me by these patriarchal oppressors and do so contrary to the Scripture, contrary to God's Spirit, and most importantly, to what God's actually calling you to. Because, again, He wants to give you a calling where the burden is easy and the, or the yoke is easy and the burden is light. If you take it on yourself to break glass ceilings, as the modern term goes, you're really just setting yourself up for a lot of frustration doing something God hasn't called you to do. Yeah, and before we move on from this issue, uh, there is one comment in our uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com website. You can follow us there. Uh, from Devin, uh, and uh, he asked, uh, couldn't God have come as a woman, and why didn't God create Adam and Eve at the same time? Uh, and he goes on from there. Well, um, we'll have to ask him when we get there, uh, as we often say about hypotheticals, uh, we really have to deal with the situation as it is, not as it uh, could be. Uh, the uh, fact of the matter is we do see, and for a reason, that God created man and woman in a particular order. In fact, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, we are told that Adam uh, was created first and then the woman. In other words, there was to be a demarcation of responsibility and uh, relationship between the man and the woman. Apparently, the creation of the man uh, at that time, out of the dust of the ground, uh, being shown all of the animals, uh, naming all the animals, and a help meet was not found comparable to him. Then we find that God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, took a rib from his side, uh, as uh, Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator, uh, once said, not from his head that she would rule over him, or not from his foot that she should be underneath him, but from his side, this picture of companionate relationship, and formed the woman. Uh, Adam looked at the woman and said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Uh, and so uh, that was the succession that we see there. Uh, there was significance behind it all. 
And as we see in passages like Ephesians chapter 5, the roles of husband and, uh, husband and wife in a marriage, uh, the way that God set it up, uh, the man is to be that spiritual leader. The woman is to be that support to the man being in that role as a spiritual leader. And if uh, we follow through on that, we're going to end up in the best place to be blessed according to the way God has designed the marriage relationship to operate. So best just to operate based on what we have. Uh, you know, if we get involved with hypotheticals, the uh, uh, old uh, Middle uh, Ages conundrum, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Uh, there were people who devoted their lives to contemplating that. Uh, I don't think that gets you much of anywhere. Yeah, uh, sure. You end up being a pinhead when it's all said and done. <laughs> True, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for that question. I'm glad you ran into Pastor Scott at the store, and hopefully you're able to, to join us and hear the answer to that. We have a lot of questions coming in. You guys are coming out the weekend strong. <laughs> so I have a list here. I don't know if you could hear me typing off of camera, but we've got some great questions here. We'll see what we can get to today. Adrian sent us a question in over email, so we'll come to that first because he was first. Uh, his question, a uh, bit of a sad story. He has a friend who's a, a, a Christian but has walked away from it, self-professed, you know, walking away from the law because of the the alleged discrepancy between the New Testament God and the Old Testament God. Jesus taught that we were to love each other, but in the Old Testament you find, again, allegedly this God who is a, a God of wrath and anger and trying to reconcile those two things. Yeah, because um, uh, the statement Jesus made, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, did not come from the Old Testament, right? No, actually, that's a quotation. So. Yeah, from Leviticus 19. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus. Yeah, you know, there, there really is that uh, kind of mythic idea, and it almost, uh, it kind of fits into uh, a category. I wrote a, a book called Myths the World Taught Me yeah. uh, about uh, how good old all-American folk religion and what the Bible actually has to say about things are often two different animals. This is one of those great uh, urban legends that gets passed along as biblical truth the god of the old testament is a god of wrath the god of the new testament is a god of love i like that new testament god that old testament god is pretty scary so let's analyze that a little bit is the god of the old testament a god of wrath with a lightning bolt ready to fry anybody who gets out of line well, you could come to that conclusion, but the people who have read it would have a different opinion formed. When it comes to God's presentation of his character, the first thing we need to do is to understand, first of all, what he did, second, why he did it, and third, the explanations maybe he provided as to his feelings about the matter. That would be perspective or reaction to it. Because if you were able to understand, uh, you know, I biked to work today. Then you clarify, why did you do that? Well, I've been getting a little uh, pudgy, and of course, my car's out of gas. Those would be two reasons as to the function of it. But my attitude is I also enjoy bike riding. That would be clarifying a lot of things about me as opposed to a simple action. So let's again ask the question. God called judgment down on the Canaanites, disposed them or dispossessed them from the land of Canaan, drove them out of the land. That, of course, was an example of wrath. That is what he did. Why did he do it? Well, if we read Genesis chapter 15 about events that took place 800 years later in the book of Joshua, first hint, but the point being made is just that we're talking about people who were doing things they knew were wrong, 
that would warrant those kinds of consequences and were given not days, not moments, centuries of second chances along the way. Mm. And that's why there's an explanation given in the New Testament, specifically 2 Peter chapter 3, verses or verse 9 in particular, where it notes that God's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Now again, I can slap my forehead and say, you ignoramus, you haven't read the Bible, but you're talking to a human being. So let's make sure that we remember that part. The first thing to do is to give an example of God demonstrating undeniably love in the Old Testament, and that's why I started with Leviticus 19. Again, a little snarkily, but we're among brothers here, so you can appreciate the humor. But another great example, again, you can pick any of the Psalms in noting God's loving kindness towards Israel, but my personal favorite as far as a demonstration of God's heart towards people is the book of Hosea, where in an illustration of God's dealings with the people of Israel, he tells his prophet Hosea to go and marry a wife that he knew would cheat on him. Her name was Gomer. And after literally having children that he named, this isn't my kid, he then explains why did Hosea do this. He's not explaining a poor judgment call and Hosea tacked God's name onto it. He says, this has been you for the last 400 years that you've been living in the land. I've taken care of you. I've, this is a quote, drawn you with bands of loving kindness with yeah. this picture of a father helping his children to walk by, you know, supporting them with little ribbons under their arms. You know, they didn't have babies RS back then, so yeah. they had their little makeshift yeah. things. But you get the picture. You see God as a loving father, heartbroken that his people have gone off and, well, made a mess of themselves, for lack of a better term. Ezekiel had other illustrations, but the point being made is just that. If you are going to come to a conclusion about everything that the Old Testament God is made out of in general terms, and there are specifics that contradict that, that's the problem. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, oh, the New Testament God, I'll so generally define him as a God of love and love for love's sake and love as I define it, not how he demonstrated it, and on and on it goes— you can respond the same way with a specific demonstration of wrath. Now, people are going, oh, well, you mean like the book of Revelation? That's a good place, kind of obvious. But where I actually like to go is where people aren't expecting. Um, obviously, when we deal with the Andy Stanley controversy, people who say we got to unhitch our Christian faith from our Jewish scriptures, that is, of course, ridiculous because I can just open to the first verse of the New Testament, and it says, Jesus, this... Uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, who are David and who are Abraham? You need the Old Testament to make sense of the first verse of the New Testament. Right. So if I were to go to the New Testament, and again, general definitions of love, but there's a specific definition of wrath being laid out, that again throws a monkey wrench in the interpretation that the New Testament is all just about, you know, uh, what what's the word that... Uh, it's used on the internet now among apologetic circles, the evangelifish approach, the soft and squishy but nothing of substance. Uh, this is uh, Matt, or the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, where John the Baptist is speaking. He says in verse 7, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, remember New Testament, brood of vipers. He calls them sons of snakes. And then says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is past, because we're in the New Testament now? No, to come. Ah, so New Testament begins 
Jesus's ministry with his cousin advertising wrath is coming and you guys need to get right or get left. Yeah. So again, well, you know, I I guess to, to sum it up, you know, when we take a look at the God of the old Testament, you know, when we even talk uh, about uh, some of the, uh, the wows, as far as the demonstration of God's wrath is concerned, say uh, Israel removing the Canaanites for the land, Mm. over 500 years given to repent, Uh, the flood of Noah, 120 years mm. Noah preached before the flood actually came. Uh, the, the restraint that God uses is pretty immense and intense. Even the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is, uh, is, mm. is uh, led into by Abraham having this conversation with God like a Middle Eastern horse trader. He's saying, uh, if there's 50 uh, righteous people, in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare the city? Far be it from you uh, to uh, judge unrighteously. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? We quote that passage a lot, but that is Abraham saying that to God. He's going, you're going to do the right thing. And he goes, all right, for 50, I'll spare the city. He goes, oh, you know, if you just indulge me a little bit, uh, if there were 40, you know, just because there were 10 less, would you spare? For 40, I'll Finally, dickers him down to 10. And uh, if there's 10 righteous people in the city, I'll spare it. You know, and, and what's the purpose of all of that? Well, it's to show us that the Lord, as Psalm 103 says, is compassionate and gracious, mm. slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know, again, God also takes no debt, joy in the death of the wicked, uh, Ezekiel chapter 18 mm. tells us. And, and so we see the Old Testament God judging sin. Yeah, he's just. But he never forgets mercy in his judgment. The life of King David, you know, a guy who really, in a sense, deserved to have the hammer fall because to whom much is given, much is required. He had this intimate relationship with God, still turned away from the Lord, got involved in an adulterous affair to cover it up, ended up killing the husband of the woman that he had the affair with. Uh, You know, we see that David didn't die as was coming to him. But there were consequences. The sword never departed from his house after all of that. So we do see in the Old Testament a God who is compassionate and gracious and yet one who is just. We see in the New Testament a God who is compassionate and gracious, Jesus full of grace and truth Mm -hmm. in his first coming. And yet we see also in the book of Revelation at his second coming, he is going to be incredibly just after giving mankind a huge amount of time to get right. So no variation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 uh, tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Old Testament God, New Testament God thing, I think it's a modern myth. It just doesn't stand up under examination. Yeah. And it's important to remember the, you know, we talk about the, the the good news, the gospel, which means the good news. The bad news was that we have a God who is, you know, perfect in all of his, his ways. He's, he's perfectly merciful and loving, but he's also perfect in his wrath, and he's also perfect in his judgment. And the, the, the bad news, so to speak, the problem, so to speak, was that how could God be merciful and yet not pour out his wrath on us? We deserved wrath. We deserved hell. We deserved Hitler condemnation. Deserved That's, we deserved to be stopped. Yeah. How could he be merciful on us while still being just? You know, you can't, a judge in a courtroom can't say, well, I know you burnt down that, you know, 
score but don't Orphanage, worry yeah. don't worry about yeah. it don't yeah. worry yeah. you know like well, you can't do that yeah. you got you, yeah. you got to be just yeah. who's going to pay for it who's yeah. going to pay for it yeah. well in the person of Jesus Christ the good news yeah. is that Jesus came God God in, in the person of Jesus came and in that moment we sing that song justice and mercy meet on the cross so God was perfectly wrathful and perfectly merciful towards us because he poured it on himself in the person of, of Jesus. So and he hasn't changed. And perfectly relational because he didn't force that salvation or that wrath on anyone who hadn't chosen it. Right. You can reject Jesus and receive wrath, or you can receive Jesus and the mercy that entails. Yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah. So for me, if, if, you know, if God does appear to be more wrathful in the Old Testament, it just reminds me of what a great gift Jesus is because I get the mercy and the forgiveness and... Absolutely. That side of things, you know. Yeah, I think we're going to have to go into like a uh, lightning round sort of mode because, we, like you said, we've got a ton of we questions do. here. Well, Adrian. Some, some of these are pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hopefully. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where are we Adrian, going, Dave? thank you. Thank you for your question. Debbie asks, will the Antichrist be born like Christ in that his parents won't know who he is until he reveals himself? That's an interesting question. You know, it's uh, it's a question that we really don't have an answer to. Uh, yeah. There are some who will say that uh, just as... Uh, uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, that there's going to be uh, some sort of satanic uh, intervention that's going to bring the Antichrist in, that the Antichrist is in some way going to be the physical son of Satan. Well, that's a non-starter in two ways. First of all, we are told that angels don't procreate, and Satan is a fallen angel. He does not have the capability of doing such. Uh, second of all, there's no need for Satan to procreate, to bring the Antichrist in, Let's face it, according to Ephesians chapter 2, we are told you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In other words, uh, the Antichrist will be an individual who fully embraces that status, fully rejects his saving relationship with Christ, and Satan will be able to use him to his ultimate end doesn't require any kind of uh, Rosemary's baby kind of intervention uh, to bring the Antichrist into the world. Will the Antichrist be uh, an individual that will be satanically possessed to the nth degree? Sure. But note, that's very easy to accomplish by just lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was born of a virgin. Source, trust me, bro. Yeah. I control the government and all the medical records anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I think you're going to have a regular person born of regular parents. Will the parents know that they've given birth to the Antichrist? Probably not until he manifests himself as such. At the three-and-a-half-year so. mark of the tribulation, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And another question about Satan? Same, same person from Debbie. Oh, yes. Um, I kind of spread out a question, to be fair to other people, but we can certainly go into that. <laughs> How does Satan treat his demons? Is it like a boss relationship? Man, that's... We aren't told... Terrible boss. Th yeah, the only interactions we're told about are angels with people or demons with people, not demons with demons or angels with angels. We won't speculate into things we have no business getting into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the Apostle Paul talking about spiritual warfare does talk about principalities, he does talk about powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Principalities and powers were political designations. Uh, they were uh, the way that uh, the Roman government basically broke things down and allowed their influence, their order uh, to go on. Satan can't be everywhere at once. He's not omnipresent. Now, another one of those modern myths seems to be a, a 
theme on the program today, is that Satan is the equal and opposite of God. God's the good side of the force. Satan's the bad side of the force. They're always fighting and, and so on. No, Satan is a created entity. He is a angel of great power, cherubim, as far as his actual designation, it appears, cherubim. Uh, to, uh, to you know, be concerned. Uh, but uh, he is in no way, shape, or form the equal and opposite of God. And because he can't be everywhere at once, and he doesn't know everything, by the way, he has to go back and forth on the earth to figure out what's going on there. Uh, like any good organizer, he's going to organize his troops, uh, his uh, fallen angels along those lines. does appear from those designations in Ephesians that Satan does have sort of a militaristic kind of a control over uh, the fallen spiritual entities he sends out to do his will. But that could just be clarifying that in light of the Roman culture he was speaking to, that the enemy is powerful, he's organized, and he's attacking this world and speaking to it as they'd understand the Romans and how they're orchestrating authority over this world. Either way, the point being made is this. Focus on Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and again, um, you know, how Satan goes about his business, the thing we need to understand is he's not the equal and opposite of God. Even in the book of Job, when he wanted to have his worst with Job, he had to go through God uh, before he mm -hmm. could do anything. Uh, you know, he's called the God, little g, of this world. He has certainly set up this world system that uh, is custom designed to keep people from God and to oppose uh, the, uh, the work of God in this world. But uh, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. Uh, we don't fight for victory against these principalities and powers. We fight from victory with them. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, you know, again, gates aren't an offensive weapon. They're a defensive uh, mm -hmm. strategy. And so Satan is doing his best to hold on to his turf. We, through the power of God's word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus as he leads and guides and directs us, we're a far greater threat to the powers of darkness than they are to us. Mm, but only because of our proximity and relationship with Jesus. Don't right. go uh, charging in yourself. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, amen. Debbie, yeah. thank you so much for, for being with us and your questions. Very good questions indeed. I have a question from Brandon. You're going to love the, the wording of this, so I'll ask it and then I'll hide under the table. Are you ready? Oh, okay. Is there, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there a certain formula for casting out demons in a believer? Uh, is there a formula for doing something that doesn't happen? Sure, don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, uh, that's the key issue. Can right. believers be demon-possessed? Demon right. uh, well, First John chapter 4 and verse 4, I believe, puts that to bed once and for all. Uh, you know, the Apostle John saying, You are of God, little children, you've overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever see Christian growth being facilitated uh, Christian growth being stunted by the presence or absence of demonic entities. It simply is not there. Mm. Uh, the scripture doesn't say greater is he that is in you than he that is in you or some demonic entity that is in you, like the Holy Spirit has some kind of roomy situation <laughs> with a fallen entity and says, okay, you got this part of the house, I got this part of the house. The Bible does say that we are to put off the old man, that is our fallen sinful nature, uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, some of these uh, teachings about Christians being demonized and, boy, you got to pray this, uh, you know, this prayer for deliverance in the right order where you don't get delivered, uh, you know, that, that uh, wind of doctrine blows in and out of the church on a regular basis. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, I think one of the reasons it's popular is because you know you can say, well, not my fault that I've got these issues in my life. The devil made me do it. Right. And if I fall into it again, then I go back to church, have somebody pray for me, you know, throw up in a little baggie or something like that, and then the demon is out of me, and and so it goes. Uh, we're not to cast demons out of people uh, who are believers in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, Satan can have his way with you. There's no protection there, obviously. But uh, if we are believers in Christ, uh, we are told, for instance, uh, in 1 John 5, uh, a pretty important truth that I think we need to take to the bank whenever this particular subject comes up. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse uh, 20, uh, well, I guess we could uh, go back a few verses. Verse 18, it says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin in a habitual sense, but he who is born of God keeps him. And the wicked one does not touch him. Well, the idea of touching there is the idea of grasping on or having a, uh, an influence. Can Satan influence us? Yeah, he can from the outside in, through bad doctrine, through believing things about God, ourselves, and others that just aren't true. But he can't influence us from the inside out. If you belong to Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. No room for Satan to come in and do his stuff. Anything you'd add to that? Well, and then let's just deal with the question in a more direct sense. How then do, if you're put in that situation, cast out a demon? Well, obviously, when we say we pray in Jesus' name, there's um, Luke 9, 49, I think, is a good example where their disciples are asking Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. Well, what does it mean to do that in your name? Well, when we pray, it's not to say in Jesus' name, it's to act as if you were Jesus. So is there like a, a Jesus method? No, because we also have an application of in what sense it says Jesus' name. This is in Acts chapter 16, the uh, incident at Philippi. The book of Philippians was written to them later on. Uh, this woman who was demon-possessed, note verse 16. It notes, Paul, greatly annoyed, yeah. that kills me, yeah. <laughs> uh, turns and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. That's it. No, you know, holy water, no seven-step transmogurification or ritualistic sigils. You don't have to learn Latin or anything like that. You don't, What's your name, demon? That's all hogwash. Don't worry about it. Just make sure that Jesus is the one dealing with this. Any mention of you is you mentioning him. Yeah. That's all you have to do. Right. Yeah. And I don't want us to do any line skipping here, but uh, I always like to uh, uh, bring our friend Adni in uh, Nigeria uh, to the, the front of the line. He's got a yeah. question for us on Facebook. Yeah. Do you have it right there? Yeah. I'd probably be uh, quicker said, than me. Uh, uh, please, since we believe all those who died believing in Jesus are now in God's presence, again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Correct. Okay. Uh Again, how do we explain Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible? It's a cross-reference with 1 Thessalonians 4, where it's noting not the time of our physical death and being with the Lord. It's those who don't experience physical death, but also then being brought to the Lord. There will be a time at which those who haven't physically died will be brought to the Lord's presence and receive the same Christ's presence as those who physically died, and that's clarified in verses 50 through 55. Note the whole statement and the chapters flow as well. Yeah, apparently uh, the, the, there's different ways to understand this makes the most sense, and I think it brings all the threads together. Uh, when uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the dead in Christ will be raised mm -hmm. uh, incorruptible, uh, it's the idea that although believers are spiritually present with the Lord, they're going to receive a resurrection body that's going to allow them to 
be able to interact with this physical universe again, just like Jesus had a resurrection body. Why don't they get that immediately? Right now they have no need of it because they're in the spiritual dimension that uh, we would call heaven uh, with the Lord. They don't interact with this physical world we're in. However, when Jesus returns, they are going to interact with this physical universe again and will need a resurrection body like Jesus to be able to do so. And so when the rapture takes place, those of us who are here and are instantaneously caught up to meet in the Lord's, we're going to need a resurrection body because going from zero to infinity and being caught up in the clouds in a physical body like this, we'd all explode and, and that would be it. Uh, instantaneously, we're given that resurrection body that, like Jesus in Acts chapter 1, was raised up into heaven, will be able to be raised up into heaven at that particular time. Uh, those who have died in Christ, who are just in the presence of the Lord spiritually, will receive that resurrection body, and then we will all be able to return with the Lord as described in Revelation chapter 19 to rule and reign with him here on earth for a thousand years. That's what makes the most sense to me. I hope that helps you out, Adney. Yeah, very good. Yeah. We have a question. Man, if this is a college class, I'd want to get the tape and listen to it again. There's a lot of uh, getting through a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this that's is good. good stuff. We love it. Would it be improper for a Christian and or a pastor to enjoy obviously questionable death metal music and graphic horror movies? So I guess generally the question, how, how much should we censor ourselves as Christians in what we listen to and watch? It's a great question. Be sensitive to the conscience of those you're around. If mm. you're in the company of people who are stumbled by those things, of which there are many, sure. then just note that's not the sort of things you'll be talking about. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy those things on a person-by-person -person and heart-by-heart -heart basis. We'll all give our own account of ourselves to the Lord. Yeah. If I'm going to stumble someone because of the movies I choose to watch, Easy. Walk in love. Don't watch those movies when you're around them. And when you're watching those movies, make sure that it's with the sort of heart and mind. And again, those listening are like, if possible, it is. The point being made, though, is just that. Make sure that whatever you're doing, it's to glorify Christ. I can watch a lot of weird things. Not inappropriate things, obviously. I'm aware of my own weaknesses. But do so with Scripture in mind. If on the other hand, I know people who don't have that kind of calling, who wouldn't be edified by that kind of experience, only stumbled by it, walk in love. So for someone in a pastoral position, that's just another layer of accountability, which I also have. I'll be fully accountable and note I can watch things that most people wouldn't want to watch, but I also avoid things, very much avoid certain things, because mm -hmm. I'm also aware of my own sensitivities. The emphasis is the attitude and heart. You can read this in Romans 14. Yeah, and, and you know the, what I'd add to that is, you know, I've I've often shared that uh, as far as alcohol is concerned, I, I don't drink at all, uh, and uh, it's not because I believe the Bible teaches total abstinence from alcohol for all people. Uh, Jesus obviously didn't make a really great grape juice at that uh, wedding in Cana. <laughs> it was finely vintaged wine, uh, but I do know that for me personally. Uh, you know, I come from three generations of alcoholics that I know of. Mm. I don't want to give it a chance in my life. God told me very early on in my walk with God, don't be a part of that. The second reason I don't is because we minister to a lot of people who struggle with substance abuse. And if I could, using my freedom in Christ, say be drinking wine or some other drink when I'm out uh, to eat, maybe somebody's going to see me and uh, say, oh, well, Pastor Scott's drinking. I guess I can drink too. Right. And I don't want to lead that person uh, into a stumbling situation. As far as entertainment goes, you know, I just think it's good to have a grid. 
uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are pure, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind think on these things. So Sounds like Jesus. You know, I, I, I want to focus in on things that are going to cause me to think in a more Jesus-like way, uh, entertainments, things like that. You know, uh, people got to make their own calls. But for me, that's why I don't really go in for heavy gore movies or horror stuff or things like that. Yeah. Because I just don't see it fitting into that grid. Yeah. yeah. Real quick question then. Uh, Gilbert asks, what is, it, uh, what is the best way to give to tithe biblically? What's a good biblical? Joyfully and voluntarily. Not yeah. any set limit or percentage. Whatever God lays on your heart, just make sure it's because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, uh, you know, we really do get a standard for this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the New Testament standard of giving. Paul says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we're supposed to give, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, mm -hmm. not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful. Now notice it says that we're to give purposefully. It's supposed to be intelligent. We're supposed to look at uh, giving from a scriptural point of view, not grudgingly or of necessity. I, I call this the eye roll test. If someone, if you're thinking about giving and your first reaction is, oh my goodness, then don't give. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's supposed to be uh, a joyful thing. For God loves a cheerful, literally a hilarious giver. It's the ultimate get to, not got to. And you know, I, I think it needs to be systematic. I think it needs to be a regular part of our Christian lives, but it needs to be spirit-led. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. What a great hour we have. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.